This is Transistor.fm. Code Fun Podcast Network. Hey, Ron. How's it going? Going pretty good. Hey, Nate, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Excited for the weekend. The long weekend coming up. How are you, Andrew? I am doing pretty good. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. Welcome to another episode of the Ruby Blend, where we blend and talk about Ruby and other things. So I think the first thing we wanted to talk about, Nate, I hear I've been away from the computer for a little bit and not paying attention to stimulus reflex as much this week, but I heard there were some pretty cool things going on there that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, we've had some really good contributions recently. The one that's got me most excited is one from Jason Charns of Podia and Remote Ruby fame. I paired with them a little bit. We were looking at some of the the needs that they've got, and they've got very sophisticated forms that they're they're using stimulus reflex on. And they also use a cookie-backed session store. And so it limits some of the things that they can do with stimulus reflex. And they also did not want to use their cache a mechanic to essentially persist state between reflexes. And so he came up with a a very elegant solution that, that stimulus reflex has lacked for quite some time. And essentially, long story short, what it does is it promotes forms to be a first-class citizen in the world of stimulus reflex. And when you invoke a reflex, whether you do it explicitly or just use the declarative way of invoking a reflex, it will serialize, if you're inside of a form, it will serialize the entire form and make that, the form parameters available to the reflex. So you can enter inside your reflex, you can just do, uh, and it, it comes in as a strong param as well. So you can, you can do your normal Rails things that you would do in a controller. So you can say params, which is a, an accessor or an ad- a property of your reflex now. So you can do params.require user.permit, you know, first name, that sort of stuff you can now do in your reflex. And it happens automatically every time a reflex is invoked. So your form state is persisted consistently between reflexes. So no matter how many form reflexes you trigger, if you're doing inline validations or need to fetch more data or that kind of thing to make the very complicated forms interactive in a very simplified way, now it's even, it's even easier to do. So in CodeFund, we created this idea of like a stashed form object. Would that eliminate the need for doing that? Yep. Yep. That's why I I told you earlier today that you're going to want to refactor when you see this feature come in because it will simplify some of the things that we did. The other thing that I'm excited about uh, with this particular contribution is it wasn't a significant amount of code to add this. We had one JavaScript dependency for form serialized that was added. But if you look at the code, like the, the change set to make this happen, it was pretty small. That's, that's pretty cool. Uh, the other neat thing that kind of tacks on to this is somebody brought up as a concern that they wanted to modify the param. So it, it, this works uh, implicitly inside of a form. So if you have a reflex declared inside of a form, you'll get this behavior automatically. But somebody had mentioned, well, what if I want to tack on additional params that are not inside of my form? Maybe they live outside of the form. You can actually do that as well. So you, you would just tie into the reflex lifecycle. So it would be essentially the before lifecycle event, before reflex or before your custom reflex, you could tie into that or you could tie into the event and essentially, and we'll add this to the documentation, but you can actually pull the params out and add anything to it. You can mutate the params there before it's actually sent over the wire to the server-side reflex. That's pretty cool. That's actually very sweet. Sounds like Jason has just created a massive amount of refactoring work for me to do. (laughs) <laughs> with relatively uh, few lines of code, apparently. Well, yeah, it'll, it'll be nice because the even though what we did for like solving that problem at CodeFund works, I do not like it at all. <laughs> but I didn't have a better idea. So like when Nate introduced the idea, it, it, it's complicated. 
Like it's a complicated idea. It's hard to keep track of everything. And I was like making additions to one of those forms the other day and it's just a pain. So it sounds like that once I, if I refactor the form to using this new method, then I can start fresh on this PR to update a very reflex heavy form. And then I won't have any of that pain that I was having trying to, you know, save like a stash bundle object and like, when don't you create this and this or that. And it seems like you'll be able to do that in a very rails way. The ability to just like access the params, like, like you would in a normal controller. That's, that's exciting. Yeah. The one concern that I've got with it and there is a distinction between a reflex and a rails controller. They're slightly different and they're, and as we, as we kind of add more features that make it feel more and more like a controller, I just don't want uh, new developers that are using Stimulus Reflex to get confused by that, that a reflex actually is different than a controller, even though it's very similar. Yeah, I, mm, yeah, I guess that, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if I necessarily would get that, get confused about it. But I mean, I obviously don't have the context or perspective of someone starting new. But to me, just in like the normal way, when you add dependencies like reflex or view component or whatever, they're, they're their own separate thing that live kind of outside of the MVC pattern, but they're tied into it in some way, typically. Yeah, we'll have to see if it causes any any problems whatsoever. Probably not. The other thing that that is interesting is as we add more capabilities like this to the library, it now there's a lot of ways to do similar things. So, for example, there's a pull request uh, from Jared White where he is doing a manual call down to stimulate, which invokes the reflex. And when you do that, you can pass explicit arguments. And he's got a pull request out right now to essentially take the the list of arguments that are coming in and automatically convert any of those arguments that happen to be hashes to essentially a, a hash within different access. And I'm I'm on the fence in terms of whether or not I want to add that implicit behavior. But at the same time, like you can accomplish, you can accomplish that type of sophistication by leaning on this params feature now and you wouldn't necessarily have to have to do it through an explicit argument because now params are going to exist in your reflex i that that pr that jared added is 203 in simius reflex and one of the things he says in his pr comment is that he's a stickler for always using the symbol keys in hashes and i am 100% in agreement with that I hate using, I mean, Rails does spoil it for us. And, and even on side projects or things that aren't using Rails, I still like want and sometimes do call the hash within different access because I do not like accessing the hash through like a string key for some reason. I agree with that. I, I prefer it as well. I'm just trying to decide if that should be part of, I mean, it, there's two assumptions there. One is that there may be hashes in, in the argument list. And the other one is, I mean, should that be a responsibility that the library does for you? Or is it okay to lean on the, the developers using the library to just hook in and modify that, you know, for those use cases? Personally, I would want that out of the box. What do you think, Ron? Yeah, I don't know. I think I would probably want it out of the box as well. But that's just me. Well, you I mean, guys- if you think... You should go to the issue and comment these feelings so that we can have a lively discussion on GitHub about it. I will, but I don't want to discuss it. I just want to say it and then leave. (laughs) I think part of my reasoning for this is that if, if I'm accessing a params hash inside of a Rails application, I always would expect the key to be a symbol or accessible as a symbol. And if you don't have it like that way out of the box, then I think there would be confusion. All right. You're, you guys are teaming up with, with Jared here. I think you, you almost have me convinced, but I would like to get some of that documented on the, on the PR itself. All right. I, I will comment. I will I'll make a wild Andrew appearance. <laughs> Just go in, say what you're saying, and drop the mic. Yeah, I will. <laughs> this is why I wish there were polls that you could add 
in like PRs that are just like, because, okay, the whole like the reaction thing like sort of works, but not really. Like, I wish there was a poll that was like, hey, do you agree with this PR? Yes, no. Or like a third option, maybe. And then you could just like click it. And then I feel like that would be so, so much nicer. And then you don't have like just random people leaving their, their thoughts, which, you know, probably get tangential at some point. And then you have to go read all those and keep all that in context. And then someone new coming to the PR, like who just wants to know what's going on. And it's just, I would really like a poll, a poll feature. You kind of get that a little bit with the emojis, like thumbs up, thumbs down type stuff, right? Yeah, but those emojis, I don't remember who I heard say this, but it was a really good point that those emojis mean different things in different contexts. And also the emoji, like the way it looks, looks different, different platforms and like the actual code for it is, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know how I feel about that, but regardless, yes, I will, I will add a comment. I, I do agree with that. Shout out Jared. He of Bridgetown RB fame, which is a cool project that you guys should check out if you haven't. I haven't. Uh, what, what is that? Bridgetown RB is a successor or maybe not successor, but it is a static site generator akin to Jekyll. So it's basically Jekyll, but it's Webpack aware. And it's basically, uh, it's a Ruby powered static site generator for like the modern Jamstack kind of deal we're in right now. Oh yeah. I I saw something about that show up on my feed this week, but I've been so underwater. I have didn't have a chance to check it out. It's really cool. I don't know if I've ever created a Jekyll site. And for some reason, like Jekyll just didn't really click with me. But I created a new Bridgetown site. And every time I'm creating a new website, I obviously want Tailwind. And I have no idea how you would add Tailwind to a Jekyll site because is there even a package JSON? Like I don't think so. I think you have to like start adding that stuff in manually. And then, but Bridgetown comes with that out of the box. So you can just add, I added Tailwind to Bridgetown in like five seconds. So you get like purge CSS and all that kind of stuff. Yep. I, I was trying to, in my mind, I was trying to get the, uh, the value add there and, and that yeah, just purge CSS alone and making a smaller footprint, you know, in terms of what goes over the wire for your, for your static site is, is a pretty big selling point. Well, yeah, but the, I think the, the main value add is that now you can not use like, because I would never, I didn't use Jekyll because I wanted like modern JavaScript, like package. I wanted to be able to pull in modern JavaScript packages into my, static site and it seemed harder than I wanted to deal with in Jekyll. So I was using things like Gatsby. And now that Bridgetown exists, I don't really foresee myself using Gatsby again because Bridgetown gives you, and you can use stimulus really easily. So Bridgetown allows you to write your static site in Ruby with Markdown and Liquid, I believe is what they, what Jekyll and Bridgetown both use. But you also get all the benefits that, you know, the kind of Jamstack community has created and you can pull in stimulus. Yeah, that makes sense. So a, a static site with JavaScript sprinkles is now doable. Yes. With all the modern tooling. Yep. Nice. I may actually check it out. None of these static site generators have piqued my interest because, I mean, uh, for the most part, I don't, most of the stuff that I work on not in my day job is client work and static site generators just seem too difficult to explain to clients how to make changes. And I don't really enjoy getting change requests for like something like copy, right? So that's why I like the the CMS approach to things like that. But yeah, this sounds pretty cool. I may try it out. Have they come up with a good solution in static site generator land to, if you're building a site for a client that is not technically savvy, that they can make changes without having to know about build processes and all of that? I kind of, I feel 
different ways about this, but there's a lot of like headless CMSs that exist now that you can do that with like edit the copy and like a client could log in and edit the copy. But the problem, the problem with this is that what it's going to do is when you submit those changes, it's going to update the code on GitHub, basically push a commit to GitHub and then GitHub's going, or then whatever you're using, like uh, let's say Netlify is then going to build the site. So you, I, I don't know if that's really the greatest thing to use, like have like your, like that because basically at the end of the day, your website is backed by a Git repo that your client may or may not need or have to know about, but at some time they may, they may need to, I don't know. Yeah. I would say that if you find yourself wanting to use a headless CMS with a static site generator, you're probably barking up the wrong path. It's you're, you're taking a static site and making it dynamic again. And that's not necessarily the goal of these static site generators. Yeah, that just doesn't sound right. Yeah, it, it rubs me the wrong way. But like personally, when I use it, I love it. But then again, I don't really need to use the headless or the, I don't have to use the CMS. I could just, you know, edit the code, but it is like way faster. And like at CodeFund, we considered moving off of WordPress. And we kind of put that on hold for a while. But like for that, I would totally use this headless CMS because... Justin, our marketing guru, can go in and edit everything and then just hit publish. And he has enough technical knowledge that like, like it stays in-house and we have control over it. Like I wouldn't want to hand that off to a client, I guess is kind of the point I was trying to make. Yeah, I wouldn't want to hand off a, a headless CMS like project backed by a Git repo to a client, but I'm totally comfortable doing it when it, if it stays in-house. Yeah, and that's kind of how I felt about the whole static site thing. If it's, you know, if it's internal use for, you know, a company website managed by, you know, the engineers in the company, then I guess it makes sense. But from a freelance perspective, like that just sounds like a nightmare waiting to happen. Right. Yeah. Because like if your build fails, like how, how would the client know that the build failed? <laughs> I mean, you have to like, you have to take that into, because that means they're going to have to have access to whatever the build thing is. Like if it's Netlify, for instance, and then like the build log is going to say something like pretty uncomprehensible to them. And then, you know, then what? Yeah. Well, actually, there's a pretty easy way for them to find out that the build failed. It's called blowing up my phone and until I look at it and tell them what happened. Well, yeah, but standard, standard process like that. (laughs) Uh, Yes, that is option. Option A, really. (laughs) Yeah, pretty standard. Yeah, I would I, I would check it out. It's it's definitely cool to just see. Like, I think it takes like Ruby static site generation to a different place that it isn't right now with Jekyll. And if you need some resources, Jared came on Remote Ruby, the episode that was published today, I believe today being, I don't know what da- what what date is it? I guess sometime in May. <laughs> It's it's just today. There's no more days. It's just yeah. today, tomorrow, and yesterday at this point. Yeah, well, it's it's Bridgetown with Jared. It's easy to find in the Remote Ruby episode log. And I also wrote a, a post about adding Tailwind to it, which I can we can put in the show notes. So I show you how to go from, like, I don't even have Bridgetown installed to my site is live on Netlify. And it's only like a five-minute read. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it seems like they're in, in the in the realm of Ruby static site generators. I, I haven't been following Jekyll very close, but I don't know. It seems like we've needed something like this to come along. So I'm excited to take a look myself. Like I said, if you've ever used a static site generator like Gatsby, then I think you'll be right at home because I think a lot of the ideas still are there around like, I want my site, like Netlify is just like such an amazing product. Like, and I want to use Netlify if I'm going to use a static site and because of the, like the dynamic builds on your PRs and things like that. And I don't know, Bridgetown was just really, really nice to work with. And it is still being actively developed. Jared just implemented some like really nice changes the other day. And I'm actually going to create a, a code fund plugin so that you can easily add code fund ads to your Bridgetown site, your Bridgetown blog or whatever. Nice. So you've been pretty busy with, with 
kind of getting involved in some of these, uh, a lot of new projects. It sounds like, can you, like Rails Bytes, I know you just had mentioned that you got uh, committer access on that project. Can you tell us a little bit about Rails Bytes, what it is and why we should pay attention? Yes. So Rails Bytes is an app from Chris Oliver of Go Rails fame and Remote Ruby and lots of other things. End of the show. Friend of the show. He's actually stood in for y'all on an episode and Hatchbox, which Hatchbox is amazing. If you've never checked out Hatchbox, do it now. And Andrew Famera, who works at Podia and has a few, I think a few products out there, one being App Locale, and he has a Rails tutorial building an Instagram site that's pretty good. But they combined forces and there was a comment in the May of WTFs, which is the discourse uh, kind of discussion that DHH opened up after Avdi and a few other people brought up some uh, like complaints around getting Rails app started for the first time. And one of them was kind of, you know, like the whole Rails new process, creating less friction when you create a new Rails app. DHH basically okayed the development of maybe like when you do Rails new, being able to pass in like a, like right now you can pass in a template, but there's a bunch of restrictions around that. But he opened up the possibility of pulling it down from like an API, like a website somewhere. And we could talk, we could talk about that another time. But the point of Rails Bytes is, is templates to enrich your Rails application. So when you go on the Rails Bytes website, there are a bunch of templates. I think there's like four pages of them at this point. And one of them being a stimulus and stimulus reflex template. So what you do is when you, when you're, you can literally just copy, they, they give you a command. It's like Rails app colon template and then location equals and then a, a URL to this uh, template. And what it does is it, it has like a, a set of steps it runs using like rail ties and it will set it all up for you. Um, so, so was this, had this project started before the May of WTF? No, no. Wow. That's impressive. They <laughs> that built is, it uh, in like a weekend, yeah. like last weekend or something. Very cool. I added a few, I've added several and then they actually gave me committer access so that I could help fix some bugs and add some enhancements and stuff like that. But one of my examples is adding view component to your app. So literally, if you have an app and you want to add view component, you literally just copy the command and you can just paste it in your terminal and, and you'll have it. But basically what it does behind the scenes, and you can see the template source on the website, but it just does bundle add view component and then does bundle install, and then injects into your application RB file uh, the view component engine or require view component engine in the right place. And then it uh, generates a, an example component for you. And I will put the link to that specific template in the show notes. This is actually a pretty neat idea because it, it allows some freedom to the gem author uh, or engine creator or whatever to not necessarily have to build like the installer pieces themselves and it then affords the community some creativity around how they want it installed. So there may be different ways I might want to plug in view component or, or anything else. I was going to ask, what are some of the other templates? Like what are the, what are the types of things that, that people are starting to build for this? React, view, angular, stimulus, active admin, Docker, Docker compose setup. There's even just super simple ones like GitHub issue templates, like to just literally create a few GitHub issue templates for you, annotate models, load Heroku production DB locally. So it creates like a task for you to do that. I added a bunch of like linter type things to add linters into your code, like ERB lint and the strong versions and Breakman and you are installing the .env Rails gem. And things like that. So I guess the counterpoint then would be, it, it reminds me a little bit of, of 
you know, like Chrome extensions or Firefox plugins, that's that sort of thing. Back in the day, it was one of the neatest things was to have something that's extensible, but it's also kind of an Achilles heel because people that are creating um, tools that you may want to plug into your Rails app may start getting support requests for templates that they didn't author. Right. I guess that is a possibility. And I think one of the things that may potentially stop that from happening is that number one, there's a fork button on every template so that you can fork the template into your, your, your account because you can have private and public templates. So the other thing is we're going to add comments. So if the template's broken, for instance, then I think that would be the place to resolve that type of issue. It is possible that it, it could get sent down to the maintainers, but then at that point, there's probably something like that the way that they've set up the, like these, these little templates are like usually like less than 20 lines. So I think it'd be super easy to be like, okay, well they set up, they, this is getting set up wrong. And if it's getting set up wrong, maybe there's something in the gem docs that are confusing. So, and so I think like the real power of this though is going to be for gem maintainers. Because imagine like on Stimulus Reflex, instead of you having to explain, like you can still explain how to install the gem, but now you can just include a link to the Rails byte and you can be like, okay, well, here's the installation instructions or just run this and it will install it all for you. Yeah, I wonder if there should be some, some mechanic involved similar to, to how Docker Hub works where there are officially sanctioned you know, Docker images that you can pull, but then there's like the, this whole universe of, of you know, community contributed images as well. I wonder if, if these templates might benefit from something like that. Well, it's interesting you bring that up. So Dave Kamara, who runs Drifting Ruby, actually has created something similar to Rails Bytes, but I think he started it I think he started it before they did, but these are all templates that he has created himself. So I think that would, that kind of benefits from the fact like these are all going, like I think he wants to create some sort of model, premium model at some point, but right now it's not. But some examples on here are like adding GraphQL or there, he has a stimulus reflex one too. So if it's broken over there, like, he's going to be able to fix it versus, yeah, I, I think on Rails Bytes, it will become a problem at some point that, you know, there's there's eight different templates for doing the same thing. And if you don't have like a, a, a supported one or like a preferred one, or so, there's got to be some sort of mechanism to kind of distinguish like, okay, this is like the official one. But that could be the, like if a gem maintainer wants to, I feel like that would be a perfect thing for like a gem maintainer. Like for us at Seamless Reflex, we could, create like an officially, you know, the official stimulus reflex one. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I guess the other thing that's kind of interesting about this, uh, I mean, a lot of times when people think about what, what they want to include in their rails app, um, some, some folks think of that as, you know, in the early days of your project, when you're, when you're initially starting the project, right, it's rails new, and then you give it a whole series of flags of what you want enabled, what you want disabled. But I guess one one selling point of these templates is that you can you can choose to install, or I'm presuming that they also support uninstall if you wanted to remove a template from your project. Well, someone brought that up on Twitter, and I think there is a way to in, uninstall it, but I don't think it's going to like undo what the like template does. If that makes sense, like I don't think it's going to run like you know, take out the gem and then unbundle install and then, you know, uninject it from a file. I don't think that's, I don't think that's doable or even really possible. That would be pretty slick if you could. I also like the idea that you can just run these at any stage of your app lifetime, right? I mean, you, you could have a a two-year-old project and run one of these templates to get, get some new functionality. Right. Yeah. That's, that's pretty cool. And yeah, if there was a way to, revert the changes, then, you know, you could just, you know, try out something new with very minimal danger, you know, like, Oh, Hey, hey, you know, I haven't tried this, but now I have a rails byte that, you know, basically is a one command install. Let me try it out. And if I don't like it or it's not quite what I need, then it'd be easy to revert it. Well, it is easy to revert. You just don't commit. (laughs) 
<laughs> like true. <laughs> I mean, like the the template is not installing the template into your Rails application. It's just running steps that the template specifies. Right, right. So you can just blow away your all, you know, all the changes. Yeah. So I mean, I think that would be my answer for that for right now, until maybe there is a an actual solution. But but I don't. I think like creating a solution for that would be very complex because if you change anything from the template at any point, then all of a sudden you've introduced like a factor, like how are you going to solve that? Like for instance, adding like config options into like production RB, for instance, like if you change those options, like how are you going to be able to revert that? Yeah. I mean, maybe you could detect it and just like print out, okay, we, we removed the gem or the, the JavaScript dependencies and now you need to go take these lines out of these files or something. Yeah, I, I, personally, I personally, if someone like were to ask me my, my opinion, I, I don't think that's necessary. I think that's up to you. Like if you, you can easily go see what the, what the template is installing. So you should also be able to go back and uninstall it. And if you don't know what the template is installing, I think that's a bigger problem and you should definitely know what you're like putting into your app. I agree with that, but I mean, you could be six months down the road, and you're like, "Oh, you know what? We added uh, we added this particular template into the app, and now we no longer need it, right? Or, or we didn't use it the way we thought, and let's just get rid of this because it's just bloat on our app." Well, yeah, but like once again, like you should you should be able to uninstall something from your application. If you don't know how to do that, I think that is, like I said, a bigger problem. Well, isn't, and correct me if I'm wrong, isn't part of the reason why this exists to make things more accessible and in that way more accessible to people who may have less experience programming and writing Rails applications? And then at that point, it's kind of like, well, you know, I really wanted to add this and I wasn't sure how to do it, but I installed this, you know, this Rails byte and I really don't know what it's doing except for the fact that it's what everyone says that I should be using. Like RSpec, for instance, or, you know, whatever. That's not, probably more of an edge case, but <laughs> what was that, Nate? Uh, I was just going to say, not everyone says you should be using RSpec. <laughs> of course. But yeah, I know that's, you know, probably more of an edge case, but I can see where that, I can see this being used in that, in that way. Oh, hey, you know, I'm, I'm kind of new, but I want to, you know, I want to get a lot of, you know, I, I want to get my Rails app going fairly quickly. So let me grab a bunch of these Rails bytes of stuff that I've heard of. Yes, I do think one of the goals was to make it easier to, for newer developers to add things into their application. But once again, I would highly discourage ever adding anything into your application without knowing what it is first. So I don't know. I, don't, I, don't, I stand in a complicated area on that. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that sounds good. But how many of us have ever added things that we really don't know? Or, or right. let, let me ask it this way. How many of us have ever just copy and pasted some command off the internet to, I don't know, install homebrew? Never, ever, ever have yeah. I done that. Well, the template syntax relativized makes it incredibly readable. So I think it would be pretty easy to look at the template. I mean, like I could, I could read you this template and you, I think it's very human readable. I mean, it's Ruby. So yeah, and that, that is true. I, I did look at a few of them and they look very elegant. Yeah, uh, they they read really, really well. Yeah. So I'll I'll do my one last little pushback on on that the uninstall. So imagine you inherit a project that's that's been operating, and you you see that it's using something that you don't like, and you wanted to uninstall that out of the app. It would be kind of interesting to to start from that position and say, what do I need to do to actually remove this? I mean, once again, like. It's you're not uninstalling the template, you're uninstalling the functionality. So, like, if you, if I had a project um, that's in RSpec and then it's handed off to you and you don't want to use RSpec, I feel like you would just go to the RSpec docs to figure out how to remove it. I don't know. I think that's not like, I don't think that's the responsibility of like Rails bytes because it's just installing, it's just running commands to install like the gem or whatever. I think you can go to the gem docs to see like how it's installed and then 
pretty easily like undo. Yeah, I mean, I agree with the with the senior, more more you know, senior level developers that are kind of are used to doing those things. But if you're a junior and you're you've inherited a project as a consultant or something, you may be like, oh, I want to I want to change how this is done and and remove React and replace it with Stimulus. Just getting some guidance, other than just running off to go read the manual of of the various libraries, might might be kind of useful. Well, how would the how if you handed off a project, how would they have any idea that a Rails byte was used to like generate it in the first place? No, there may not have been a Rails byte. What I'm saying is there could be a Rails oh. byte. You could use the Rails byte, uh, like oh, oh. to say, "Tell yes. me what to do to get rid of this or to swap it out." Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, from that perspective, yeah, you could totally create a Rails byte to uninstall to do the same process just in reverse. Yeah, I thought you meant like there should be Rails byte should offer a thing where. Other than like, you know, install this, there should be like a, a ability to uninstall. I don't think that's really. Oh, no. Yeah, you could do, you could have like an uninstall uh, dry run type thing where it says, okay, uh, this, we would remove, you know, these two gems and this JavaScript dependency. And then what you need to do next is, you know, make sure that these lines are configured the way you want in these different config files or whatever. Yeah, you could totally do that. It would just be its own separate Rails byte because you can like output stuff into the console. And everything. So yeah, that that's doable. I thought, okay, yeah. Yes, you can do that. I was thinking something a little different. So you mentioned uh, App Locale. What is that project? So App Locale, and I think at some point I'm going to get Andrew Famera on here to actually talk about it. It is a app to manage translations in your Rails app through I18N. So if you don't know what I18N is, it's the word internationalization and internationalization has 18 letters in it. So instead of typing out internationalization, you just type in uh, I18 and then N, just kind of how accessibility is the same thing. You see it called uh, A11Y some places. There's a few and others Kubernetes. like that. Yeah, Kubernetes is a good one. So that's what that is because I've seen, I had no idea that Kubernetes was K8s. I thought K8S was like a completely different thing. So I think at some point I started working on blog posts about that, but I don't know and I forgot it. But now that we've got what that is out of the way, in your Rails app, uh, typically there, if you, I think it's, unless it's been removed, which I have no idea why it would be, if you go into the config folder of your app and then into, what is it? Locales, there should be a folder called locales. And then there's different like locales. It's like some gems add their own, but if in a fresh app, there will be just an n.yml. And en is the, 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 the language code specification. So Rails has some nice cities that come out of the box where if you request a page and the app is correctly configured to use i18n, then if you are if your browser is configured to request pages in Spanish and your Rails app is correctly configured to handle that, then when a user loads the page, it would all be in Spanish versus like Chrome or something trying to do like their sketchy like translation on the fly. Like this would be officially supported essential translations. So that that's what comes out of the box with Rails itself. What does App Locale add to it? App Locale is a way to manage that. So basically what you do is you, when you create an account, you can create a language. So like I probably, or you could just upload your current n.yml and it will create it for you. But it basically creates your language and then it creates all the, it creates all the translations inside the app for you. And then what it will do is if you add another language like Spanish, for instance, it gives you the option to prefill that translation for the English variant. So if I add like hello, which I think is the one that comes out of the box from Rails, if I add like the translation hello and I have multiple languages configured on my project, then App Locale will show, you know, four boxes for e- like a language for if I'm doing Spanish, English, German, and I don't know, Japanese. It'll have four boxes for each language. And then it has the ability to pre-fill the translation for you using like the Google Translate API, I think is what he's using behind the scenes. 
but you could also then, this could be a place for if you're a translation expert and like I, I, I set it all up in this app for you and then you're able to log in and then you can go to each translation and then put in like the correct version of it essentially. But there's another, before I touch on this other thing, I think is really cool. Is there any questions on that? No, I mean, you've got me curious. I want to actually launch this on a project and just kind of see what the UI is like. Well, I have a blog post that I just need to like put the fluff in between the instructions and in that'll show you. He also gave us a free account for CodeFund because I've been helping him out on it. I just haven't, we haven't used it yet because we don't really do much translations in CodeFund. But the cool thing for this, and this is something I've seen on another project I worked on and I know it has some, I don't know, it's kind of, it's not really the way it's supposed to work, but you can do it like this. I think in a Rails app, there's like a helper in your views and in your controllers you can use to reference a translation by the key. So I think it's like T and then you would do like the, the key. So let's say N dot hello. And then anytime, or maybe you don't have to put in the N. Maybe it's just, uh, oh yeah, it's just T dot hello or T hello. So anywhere in your app, it's just, it's like a way to dynamically reference these translations. And I've worked on an app in the past where copy kind of changed a lot. So what they were doing is they were namespacing, they were using like the I18N capabilities to provide a way to easily change copy throughout the app. So if you're thinking a page, your homepage, then you might create a a key in your translation file called uh, home and then a sub key under that may be uh, header and then CTA. And then maybe you have a, another key that says about or like the, I don't know, offerings or whatever. And then you can, you can keep nesting like your keys and providing titles and messages and things like that. If you did something like that and your entire app wasn't in all of your views, you were just referencing these locales or like aliasing to these like translations then something like app locale could literally be a CMS almost for you where your product people could come in here and change the copy. And then the developer can simply run a command using the app locale gem that I've been helping with a little bit to pull down the translations. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I'd like to... (laughs) Yeah, I don't. I wonder if that's kind of a. It, it, would that be a recommended practice that Apple would, would recommend, or is that just something that's kind of possible? That is not the purpose of it, but it is one hundred percent possible. Like, and I think, I, I don't know. It's not really like a good practice in general. I don't think, but it would be easy way to do this, and I have seen people do it in the past, where like they literally just have a like because a product person can simply copy like the file or you could give the product person the co- I, this is what's happened to me in the past you take the file from a ruby or from your rails app and send it to your product manager and then they go in and change the copy and then send it back to you i've seen that done before yeah ron are you guys doing uh, translations over at ken i'm not sure actually i haven't come across anything that would make me think we are. So I would say no with an asterisk right now. Cause yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting like thing overall, because if your app is translated into multiple languages, then your app is by default more accessible to people around the world because what English speakers make up like less than 20% overall. So if your app is only, if your product is only translated in English, then you're excluding more than 80% of the world from, from being able to use it properly. Because like I said, you can use something like the browser has built in to like kind of translate it, but it, it's going to be incorrect in some places. And this is a way to ensure that it's always correct. So considering that, I would say we, I would bet money that we don't have internationalization just because our customers are US based because it's homeowners insurance so not sure that there would actually be a need to have internationalization in the app well not everyone in the US speaks english well that's true but if you're purchasing 
homeowners insurance in the U.S. Not to say that, you know, we, and we, I, I do know that we have agents that are multilingual for that respect. But yeah, I don't know. I'll check it out actually, come to think of it. But I like mean, I said, I haven't. Pretty I haven't. easily to figure it out if you just pop in that locales folder in your Rails app. But yeah, I, we, don't, we don't do it right now at CodeFund, although I did do it in one area or one thing because I specifically remember thinking like, this copy may change. I don't want to paste all this copy because it was, I think it was like a lot of copy. And I was like, and I don't want to paste this into the app because it was basically doing like a decision tree to figure out which copy to use. And I was like, instead of pasting all this right here, I'm just going to put it in the locales folder or into the translation and then just uh, reference that so it could easily be changed. And the, instead of it being like, you know, 50 lines of code, it's like just a couple. And then all the, all the copy is in the, the, the locale. Yeah, that's pretty smart. The, uh, Nate, you pushed back on it when I did it. <laughs> Yeah, I thought it was, I was trying to be lazy, but I think you made the right call. One thing about this product, like usually when, a, when an app gets to the point where they need translations and they start to think about this internationalization stuff, there's a degree of success that the application or product has achieved, right? So this seems like a perfect, like premium, you know, high priced type offering. It's interesting, you know, thinking of it from a product perspective that this sell into development efforts and projects to that stage of success. And this is one of those things that I think touches on that. There's been very few projects that I've worked on that have been like smaller companies or, or even side projects that, that paid much attention to internationalization, but definitely larger ones. This is, this is a concern. Right. Well, I think he built this because they have a product that they pay for at Podia, I believe, that they used to do this. And I don't remember which one it was, but he really disliked it. And it was just, I think he said it was just way overly complicated and it's expensive. If you look up like products like this, they are expensive. And AppLocal is pretty cheap right now, although I'm trying to convince them to make it expensive. <laughs> I'm trying to convince them to like add like pricing tiers so that you don't exclude people who are building small, maybe side products, but also charge the crap out of corporations because this is like a really powerful tool. And what it also gives you to that point is it gives you the ability to, to add that in with much less friction. So like if we went through and put our copy into our n.yml at CodeFund, then all we'd have to do is we could just hit the pre-fill translations button on AppLocal and have like however many languages we want just pre-fill what it guesstimates the best copy is for it. Yeah. I mean, it kind of, it gets you a head start of, of getting all of the translations pre-filled, uh, but right. I mean, they're going to have the same mistakes that translating the page mm -hmm. with Google translate would have. Right. But right. at least you're, you know, out of the gate and off to the races with getting right. your translations figured out. Yeah. And if you do have mistakes in your translations, I'm sure your customers will let you know. And then, you know, you're just in a better position overall to kind of handle that. So that's what that is. I, I think it's really cool. He is terrible at marketing his stuff. And I'm trying to like promote this a little bit or help him with it because I think this is super cool product that could, more people would definitely take advantage of if they knew it existed. Well, I think it's great for just for the use case we just described. It's a, it's a way to get started on this without a lot of friction, right? You can... You can kind of happy path it down with whatever your native you know, language is that you're building your application in. And then with just a few clicks, all of a sudden now you're supporting a much wider audience. Yeah, definitely. And like I said, if you're willing to entertain the thought, you don't have sticklers who would uh, go against it. This would be an easy way for you to introduce like a uh, hacky CMS almost into your application. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure I would encourage that, but yeah. Not encouraging it, just offering it as a thought experiment. It, is, it would be possible and easy. But yeah, but Nate, we have a free account. So if we ever want to try it, I, yeah. I got the, the link. Definitely. I think Definitely. you guys have a moral responsibility to try it out and let the rest of us know just how it works. Well, I've tried it like on a personal project already. And I have a blog post, like I said, that 
by the time this episode goes live, I will probably have posted because I hopefully am going to post it today. So I will put that in the show notes. It's your responsibility. It's a moral imperative that you complete it and post it today. I don't like the way you worded that. And now I feel pressure. (laughs) (laughs) Damn it. Now I have to do it today. (laughs) You're welcome. I'm not thanking you. (laughs) Well, you should be. Thanks, Ron. Ron, on our last episode, if folks haven't listened to that one yet, you sounded very wise. I just wanted to mention. (laughs) I sounded very wise. Was that because I was getting over being sick? Was it the Not, well? The maybe. Tomb Raider, I my voice. <laughs> I don't know. You you asked some really good questions, and when I posted that episode yesterday, and I don't know if it was just the timing was coincidental, but all of a sudden everyone's talking about on Twitter commit messages and change logs. So I don't nice. know if we started it, but I'm going to say we did, and that everyone's talking about commit messages and change logs and tools to help do that on Twitter right now because. Of us. Yeah, yeah, we did it. You're welcome, world. Yeah. It was Ron's uh, wisdom that got everybody going. <laughs> no, actually, you know, I have gone back. I normally don't listen to these, but I have gone back and listened to a couple. And, and Ron, you really do come off as like the sage wise one on the show here. <laughs> Just goes to show you can't really believe everything you hear. So I don't know. I think you're, you're giving yourself less credit than you do. <laughs> You and Nate are very sage. And I, I, the, the pattern that we've kind of got going is I rant on a terrible idea and then you guys come in with a sage wisdom. <laughs> well, that's uh, another one in the bag. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right. It was good talking to you guys. And to the rest of y'all, we will see you back next week on the Ruby Blend and show notes are available by the way. I don't think we've ever mentioned this. Show notes are available on the rubyblend.com or they should be in your, if you're listening to this on an app, you should be able to see that right there. So check out our show notes for all the cool stuff we posted or we talked about today and see you guys next week. See ya. Bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode with 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage option, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. Podcast hosting is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to transistor.fm slash Justin and get 15% off your first year.